Welcome those who were not here in the morning session. Welcome uh, to the uh, to this day-long seminar on metaphysical realism. Um, this second session um, will feature uh, Professor Candace Vogler, who's the chair of the philosophy department at University of Chicago, and her respondent, uh, David Velleman, who is a uh, professor of philosophy here at, at NYU. Uh, both are noted for their work in moral philosophy. Um, professor Vogler with a deliciously titled book, Reasonably Vicious, and uh, uh, Professor Velleman, probably most notably on the possibility, his book on the possibility of moral reason. Uh, so they're going to tackle this question of uh, moral realism uh, for us. And Professor Vogler's going to speak, and her the title of her talk is Nature, Culture, and Human Good in Aquinas. So please welcome Professor Vogler. Thank you. Um, and I, I, I will touch on something to do with nature, something to do with culture, and something to do with human good, but it's a really big title. Um, I was initially going to try to talk to you all about moral realism specifically and about the last 20 years of super interest in moral realism and Anglophone philosophy. In order to do so, it would be important to figure out a way of bringing Aquinas's moral psychology and work in moral philosophy together with contemporary Anglophone philosophy. And it was in the search for some way to do that that I kept going back and back and back and back and back trying to figure out how to make good contact between these very different ways of thinking that I wound up thinking, I don't even know how to start. I don't even know how to start. So I'm starting by talking a little bit about causation. I apologize if causation just seems really dull compared to moral realism. Um, we'll be happy to talk about some of the ways in which Aquinas is a moral realist with you um, that don't line up especially well with, with uh, my, my field. Okay. At the heart of Aquinas's understanding of human good is thought about order. A human being, the human being is the rational animal, characterized by various powers. The powers are individuated by their acts. When all is right with us, our powers are harmoniously integrated, cooperative, and coordinated. The whole human being, governed by reason, pursues its good, higher and lower powers acting in concert. In this sense, the human being is aimed at its own good order. The powers are precisely made to work together in this way when all is right with us. Of course, all has not been right with us for a very long time. Eileen Sweeney puts the point this way, quote, what is strange about Aquinas's view is that a purely natural state of humankind has strictly speaking never existed. Before the fall, nature had a kind of supernatural strength, and after that, nature is somewhat, though not radically, depleted, close quote. The uh, supernatural strength of prelapsarian human nature was a matter of orientation and governance. The human's higher powers were subject to God, the lower powers to the higher powers, and the body to the soul. And there's this 
fourth subjection that gets added in the commentary on Romans, before the fall, exterior things were subject to humankind such that they served the human and the human is not harmed by them, which is a really interesting discussion. But anyway, on Aquinas's account, the work of habituating our, so, but that was, bef, you know, before the fall. The fall introduces an element of disorder into human nature. On Aquinas's account, the work of habituating ourselves to virtue helps us to reintegrate our powers. Virtue is corrective of the sort of disorder that prevents us from both acting well and genuinely faring well. In general, such account of culture, what we tend to mean by culture, as Aquinas gives, sees the work of culture as the work of enabling humans better to direct themselves to truth, to leading good human lives, and to being good human beings in the kind of social world it belongs to us to inhabit. Not all forms of culture are in this way empowering. Not all modes of inquiry are in this way illuminating. Not all human individuals cultivate qualities of character that conduce to full and rewarding human lives, but it is in us as rational and social animals to have this orientation. I mean, what the Thomist has that, I mean, friends who are not friendly to Thomism are at least friendly to the thought that we're kind of a mess and tend to uh, chalk that up to the fact that we're super complicated. Thomists have both a picture of the kind of mess and a sense of how to understand why we nevertheless seem to be interested in self-correcting. Okay, now, I have no interest in displacing the thought that reason is what sets the human being apart from other animals. I'm actually inclined to a reading of Aquinas where the fact that we're rational transforms the powers we might otherwise seem to have in common with dogs or cats. But I think that the philosophical commonplace about this distinguishing feature ought to give contemporary philosophers pause. You do not have to be friendly to talk about God and fallen nature to notice how difficult it seems to be to square thought about human reason with facts about human conduct and experience. If you follow current events or politics, lose sleep over the doings of family members, or notice your own difficulty in making the few small changes that you know will make all the difference in your life, you might think, this is how the rational animals go about it? It doesn't help much if you think that our excellence resides in reason, since our folly looks to have a similar source. Consider other mammals eat when they are hungry, sleep when they are tired, care for their young in the way required to give their offspring what is needed so that the offspring can care for themselves and the next generation, notice the world around them, and keep track of each other and other animals in the vicinity very effectively. Such things count as notable achievements for many of us. <laughs> <laughs> While it's true that we enjoy the extraordinary fruits of collective works of reason every day, our need to manage basic tasks through force of habit mixed with episodes of working out what to do opens the door to difficulties alien to the life of the healthy house cat. Sometimes we think too much. Sometimes we ruin our health worrying over what might happen next or what we did yesterday. 
Sometimes we rush ahead when the occasion calls for reflection, and sometimes we freeze up at exactly the moment when we need to act. And even if things are going tolerably well, and even if an adult is reasonably engaged, secure, and content, she, well may, she may well find herself stepping back and blinking over how hard she has worked and how tightly she has been gripped by things that apparently had so little to give her. Aquinas's way of thinking about the human person is immensely helpful in the face of such things. On his view, if I understand him, our powers are meant to be coordinate. Sensibility is made to work with reason. Reason is made to direct the will. Rational appetite is made to move us. And all of these powers are jointly involved in successful actions and happy lives. The human being is complex, and understanding human life and human action requires grappling with this complexity in a being that has to struggle to operate in the way that it ought to operate. We are, on this view, always active, and our activity is rarely, if ever, entirely orderly. It is extremely difficult to capture much of what is useful in Aquinas' understanding of human beings in the idiom of contemporary mainstream Anglophone philosophy. One encounters trouble at virtually every point, well before one gets to questions about God as somehow at once our source and our destination. I will focus on the failure of fit between the concept of causation at issue in Aquinas' understanding of human action and two sorts popular in contemporary Anglophone philosophy. In the late 20th century, Anglophone philosophical work on causation in practical philosophy and philosophy of mind often took the form of a kind of Humeanism about causality. Humeans assume that causally linked events proceed in temporal succession you know, such that causes are temporally prior to their effects, that causes operate according to strict laws, that causal relations obtain between events in such a way that causal laws are, as philosophers will put it, extensional, that causal explanations carry ontological commitment, meaning a causal explanation doesn't make any sense if you're agnostic about the occurrence of the cause. You've got to be committed to the cause if you're giving a causal explanation. Right? and that causal explanations are sensitive to the descriptions of events. The consequences of an event, say E1, are all and only those events, say E2 through EN, brought about by E1. We give causal explanations by showing how E1 brought about these effects, which in turn requires giving an account of the causally relevant properties or aspects of E1 that can be grasped in isolation from our understanding of the consequences. You want to isolate that cause and say how it brings these effects about. Irad Kimi christens this latter requirement separatism. Quote, this is Irad, a property is said to be separable if its possession by a particular event or state is independent of any other event or state. Such a property is one that an event possesses wholly in virtue of how it is in itself, irrespective of whatever happens elsewhere. Close quote. Separable properties are both intrinsic and occurrent. 
Separatism has both sort of experiential and ontological faces, again traceable back to Hume. Experientially, it turns on the claim that a perceptual experience is a particular event whose content is independent of the content of perceptual experiences that precede or follow it. That's how you notice the causal chain, right? Um, ontologically, it turns on the claim that events have the natures that they do independently of anything else going on around them. Treat this very brief summary as a sketch of the Humean understanding of causation. This picture of causation aims to ground prediction, provided a suitably framed law and suitably individuated descriptions of a current and future events. Although its classic formulation is in terms of strict laws, the picture can be adapted for probabilistic understandings of causal relevance, like really straightforwardly. Separatism is crucial to Humean causation, and Humeanism about causation was the primary way in which late 20th century Anglophone philosophers working in the mainstream of the discipline thought about the physical base of mental events and intentional actions thanks largely to the extraordinary work of Donald Davidson. Kimi argues that separatism is nevertheless in tension with Davidsonian accounts of the sense in which reasons are causes of intentional action. You do what you do because of your reasons. That's the very simple thing that Davidson builds from. Davidson accepts a strict law construe of the character of causation and takes it that physical science can provide strict law explanations of physical events. Although mental content, beliefs, desires, thoughts about reasons, will not enter into such explanations, he also holds that token mental events are identical with token physical events. The physical events admit of nomological causal explanations. Rationalization, the explanatory and justificatory explanation of actions by reasons, does not. For all that, as becomes clear from Davidson's own examples of deviant causal chains, Davidson retains the ontic commitment to reasons as causes. He thinks that reasons really have to be causing in the right sort of way. He's committed to the existence of those reasons. Kimi summarizes the much-discussed problem that this generates for Davidsonian moral psychology this way. Quote, An acceptable rationalization cites a reason that caused the action in the right way. Such a reason seems to cause an action thanks, in part, to the fact that the reason justifies the action. It follows that rationalization indicates a causal story about the way in which an action was brought about by an agent's reasons. In such a story, the content of the sort of mental states, the beliefs and desires cited, plays an essential role. Insofar as a rationalization tells us something about the way an action was caused, it carries ontic content. Moreover, cases of deviant causal chains show that this content ineliminably depends upon the sort of mental content cited in the explanation. The problem is that Davidson's view entails that the propositional attitude content, the mental content, cannot be relevant to the ontic content of the explanation. Close quote. Now, 
Aquinas's moral psychology, as one aspect of his understanding of human nature, deploys a fairly rich and robust Aristotelian understanding of causation, precious little of which can be translated into the human idiom. If you squint really hard and stretch really hard, you could suppose that material causes are in some sense separable. <laughs> Right? Like, my matter is not the same as yours. My matter is what it is apart from everything, and so on. But an Aristotelian efficient cause, unlike a Humean cause, communicates form. The Aristotelian efficient cause informs its effect, unlike Humean causes. Worse, the modern understanding of cause and effect was developed partly in reaction against Aristotelian scholastic discussions of powers, potentiality, actuality, and the like. Now, if it did seem easy to model Aquinas's account of material, efficient, final, and formal causation involving, you know, potentiality and actuality in Humean terms, Humean causality would be very different from what Humeans take it to be. I mean, Humeans don't like powers. <laughs> They don't like talk in terms of potentiality and actuality. Crudely, the trouble with powers is supposed to be this. Either we find ourselves postulating occult forces, the operation of which admits of no proper, that is, human, causal understanding, or else we give an account of the way in which the powers work, an account of how they have the influence, manifestation, or exercise we've attributed to them, at which point talk of powers can be replaced with the account of how the power works. That's supposed to be the problem about powers. Okay. A lot of contemporary Anglophone philosophers will doubtless agree and say so much the worse for powers and any account of activity given in terms of potentiality and actuality, at which point a lot of Aquinas is really hard to find any room for. Okay, but philosophy of science has revived interest in causal powers of late. There has even been renewed interest in potentialities and actualities couched in the disposition, in the idiom of dispositional properties and their manifestations. It's coming back. It's coming back into the mainstream, or something of it is. In recent years, advocates of a view that sounds to be closer to Aquinas's have made some headway against old-time humanism. Stephen Mumford is the chief exponent of the new causal powers understanding of causation as was the case with the old metaphysics of powers. Powers are individuated by their characteristic acts or manifestations, as was the case with the old metaphysics, dispositions, which is their way of thinking about potentialities, have ontic significance. The disposition exists even when it's not manifesting itself. A potentiality exists even when it is not in octu. Causation on this view is a relation between instances of properties, and properties are clusters of powers or dispositions individuated by their manifestations. Powers give rise to properties, which are in turn further powers. 
It is always possible for powers to interfere with each other, and actual causal processes normally involve many powers. That's the basic structure of like the new Mumford position. The jury is still out on whether the Mumford program will help with the kinds of puzzles that arise in philosophy of science saddled with Humean conceptions of causality. Now, very few philosophers of science nowadays adhere to a strictly Humean account of causality. Some modified sort of quasi-Humean conce conceptions drop succession. They don't think that causal causation is best understood in terms of succession. A purge required to explain, for example, the causal nexus at issue in some instances of equilibria, where cause and effect have to be existing at the same time. If you've got an equilibrium, then what's making it be there and its effect, the equilibrium, <laughs> have to be simultaneous. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, or they get rid of strict laws, which they think maybe there aren't any, focusing instead on, for example, probabilistic causal relevance, or they soften one or another piece usually in order to bring the understanding of causal laws in line with what you can actually get from contemporary science. Mumford wants more than what these folks are up to. Mumford aspires to a fundamental ontology of dispositions or causal powers. Causal powers are dispositions that are, you know, simples. They lack the kind of structure necessary to open the door to a Humean reduction of the power that might sort of replace the talk of dispositions or powers with some talk about how these work. So you're trying to make these fundamental, these powers or dispositions fundamental, and you're trying to make it so that they are simples in the sense that you can't reduce them by saying something about how they work. They're ineliminably there. Okay. Okay. Uh, simple powers, Mumfordian simple powers, are what they are whether or not they manifest themselves, and there is nothing but the power to point to in seeking the ground or basis of the power. There is no mechanism that you could cite that would allow you to get rid of the whole talk of powers. Many of us, or any of us, we could put it this way, who has you know, ever found herself sort of baffled by Aquinas on, say, first operations and second operations, or first actualizations and second actualizations, or the you know coordinate work of sensibility, reason, and appetite, and so on, might find Mumford causal powers immensely cheering. First off, although he draws some examples from biology, a science that seems to bring something of Aristotle along with it in ways that will trouble some critics, he turns to physics often enough, and I have yet to meet the analytic philosopher who is embarrassed by physics. <laughs> I mean, Mumford's primary example of a simple is a dispositionally individuated fundamental particle with no internal structure. So that's his example of a simple. Second off, it might seem like Mumford's method will allow for unabashed realism about sort of modal properties, properties about possibility and actuality, right? um, given sort of counterfactual supporting aspect of dispositional individuation. 
a sort of proper ontology of powers and as many kinds of potentiality, potentiality and actuality as one might hope to find. So it can look really promising if you're a sort of Thomist looking for a way to break in. Okay. I don't think that Mumford causal powers are going to be the way to bring Thomistic moral psychology into the mainstream, however. Um, uh, as a first note of caution, although Mumford is busily engaged with arguing against many, many aspects of Humean accounts of causality, he appears to embrace the feature that Kimi dubbed separatism, the requirement that providing adequate causal accounts of phenomena requires providing an account of sort of base-level properties that are at once occurrent and intrinsic and are what they are apart from anything else separately. The various causal powers are what they are in isolation from the other causal powers in the vicinity, even if their manifestations depend on the manifestations of other causal powers if I understand Mumford, I mean, if I understand how this goes. The contributions of an individuated causal power's manifestation that it makes to the phenomena can be treated separately even if the power never acts alone. In short, Mumford's method of individuating dispositions manages to maintain something of the basic thrust of separatism even if there is a holistic, context-dependent framework in place within which the causal powers manifest themselves. If I understand him, and this is a bigger if from my point of view, the potentialities and actualities at issue in Aquinas' moral psychology are not entirely separable. You can't completely, even though you can describe them in and pick them out and talk about them, in isolation from one another. I don't think that they are ontologically separable. Um, okay. Appetitive powers do not have the character that they do apart from rational powers, human appetitive powers. Rational powers do not have the character they do apart from, you know, human sensibility. Aquinas has a lot to say about the various potentialities and actualities associated with reason, will, and sensibility respectively. It can be very difficult to determine which things belong to which aspects of human activity. I mean, for this reason, if no other, attempting to interpret Aquinas's moral psychology ignites tremendous scholarly controversy. But you know, I'm strongly inclined to side with Daniel Westberg on the unity that governs the various aspects of human activity in Aquinas. Westberg writes, quote, the mistake almost always made in understanding Aquinas on, you know, something like decisions to act is to impose a sequential model on the language of Thomas and have the will follow the intellect or make its own decision when he wants us to see each guiding the other. And I tend to think it's something stronger even than that kind of holism. The key to realizing this is the fact that intellect and will are not two similar but distinct faculties of the mind, one doing one job 
and one another, in which case maybe they would operate sequentially, but are actually two different kinds of potencies according to Thomas. Using his, this, his metaphysical basis, the intellect is the term for a person's ability to recognize reality and truth, while the will is a person's ability to be attracted toward good specified in this way. In practical reasoning, both intellect and will will need to be active at the same time, and I think interdependently. It's deeper than just simultaneity. Apprehension and inclination are simultaneously necessary for action, just as pitch and rhythm are both essential for music, which must involve sound frequencies as well as motion forward in time. Close quote. Relatedly, but I think more importantly, as John O'Callaghan argues in a recent paper, the plain modality of sort of possibility and actuality at issue in counterfactual supporting accounts of dispositional properties is not yet the modality at issue in a picture of the rational animal as fundamentally oriented to truth and human good. Mere modality is not enough to capture the directedness of human rational activity in Aquinas. We need something closer to the full normativity of truth and goodness if we're to understand Aquinas on the activity of the rational animal as such. Okay. Those of us who want to work in and with Aquinas's moral psychology in conversation with mainstream contemporary Anglophone philosophy need ways of talking about causality that are very difficult to translate into the terms that are readily available in Anglophone philosophy. Humean causality, however deeply ingrained it's become in intellectual common sense, is not going to help, right? Um, the holism, you know, produces one sort of difficulty with the Humean picture, um, a sort not unlike the sort that philosophers are attempting to address with a revival of interest in potentiality and actuality, dispositions and manifestations, powers and their acts over in philosophy of science. But I have doubts how much of the strength of Aquinas's account of the activity of the rational animal can be captured using the resources of the new sort of work on causal powers exemplified by Mumford. The kind of directedness that marks our efforts, our successes, and our imperfection and failures is not a kind that Mumford's work is especially suited to express. Even if we can get sort of the modality of possibility worked into the fabric of actual nature, rather than just somehow appended to it from some system of possible worlds, side note for philosophers, the modality of possibility is not yet the normativity of truth and goodness. In short, as near as I can tell, neither Hume nor Mumford will do the work of giving us an account of the varieties of causality that animate Aquinas's understanding of human activity. And I think I'll probably stop there. Thank you. So I'd like to welcome uh, Professor Velleman for a response. Thank you. And thank you, Candice, for a great paper. Uh, Candice begins with a very evocative uh, description of the ways in which 
uh, we sometimes fail to work. Uh, and in particular, the various aspects of our nature fail to work together. Um, and then she goes from there to the subject of causation because um, causation has to do with how things work. And the question is, what kind of causation uh, is involved in the way that we work when we work well or work badly when things break down? Uh, and she offers uh, two, as she calls them, separatist models of causation, the Humean model and the uh, model uh, now being explored in the philosophy of science uh, of dispositions. Um, and I just want to talk a little bit about the sense in which these are separatist models. Um, in the Humean model, cause and effect are separate in two senses. Uh, one is that they, uh, cause and effect are separate in their natures. The cause is what it is, independently of what effects it has. The effect is what it is, independently of what caused it. And similarly, collateral causes, causes which uh, contribute to the same effect, are independent in nature of each other. So that's one sense of separatism. And the other sense is temporal. In the Humean model, causes strictly precede their effects. Uh, in the dispositional model, the uh, separatism in nature is there, but the separatism in time is not necessarily. Um, the disposition is what it is. I'm sorry, I did it the wrong way around. <laughs> um, in the dispositional model, the disposition precedes its manifestations, um, but the disposition in its nature is what it is um, in relation to what its manifestations are. It's a disposition to produce those manifestations. Um, so these are two different kinds of separation, uh, both of which Candace suggests uh, are not present uh, in the model that she prefers uh, in which aspects of us work together both simultaneously and because they are in nature uh, dependent on their relation to one another. Each of them is in itself a part of the larger person uh, to whom the other aspects belong. Um, so I just want to talk a little bit about uh, these two different kinds of separation. It may be that in the um, dispositional model, the uh, dispositions, as uh, Candace has it, are separate from each other. That is, each disposition is what it is independently of other dispositions that may work with it. That may be so in the uh, model of physics that Mumford is working with. But in our notion of psychological dispositions, uh, I'm not sure that is true. Um, when we think of uh, mental states such as belief and desire, um, each of them is a disposition to behave in certain ways. 
but they are interdependent dispositions. A belief is, a desire is a disposition to act in ways that will produce some outcome given what you believe. A belief is a disposition to act as if the world is a certain way given what you desire. So these are, in, in at least psychological dispositions, they are not necessarily separate in nature. More interesting, I think, is the issue of separation in time between cause and effect, the kind of separation that appears both in the dispositional and the Humean model, where the cause must be present prior to its effect. I think that the um, main attraction of teleological causation is precisely, especially as a, an account of human action, is precisely that the teleological cause is active throughout its effect. Hum the teleological cause of action is active throughout the action and guides it throughout its course. Whereas the standard picture of Humean causation is that the cause precedes and then the effect goes off on its own. And it certainly seems as if human action is not propelled, but is guided. Um, an image that I think is useful in this um, connection, although it has um, an un unfortunate martial uh, connotations, is the difference between ballistic and cybernetic um, causation. A ballistic missile is a missile that is propelled by an initial explosion and it then flies through the air without guidance. A guided missile has some system which throughout its flight adjusts its path so that it reaches its target. And human action is not ballistic. We are not set in motion by explosions and then just fly through the air. We are guided, and the attraction of teleological causation is that it gives us an account of guidance. The question is, and this I think goes to the heart of what Candace is talking about, is that this image of the ballistic and guided missile, if you'll permit that image, um, suggests that there are Humean mechanisms that accomplish guidance and accomplish it without a teleological cause. That is to say, the target is not attracting the missile. There is a, an efficient cause guiding it. Um, and what Candace is arguing for is, I believe, the uh, thesis that, um, in fact, this kind of guided nature of human action cannot be explained by reduction to a human mechanism. That the that the, this kind of causation is fundamental and not reducible. Um, and that is my commentary.
So um, I think Professor Vogler is going to make a few, if you wanted to just respond to the response, and then we'll do uh, some questions. Thank you, David. That was very generous and wonderfully uh, much clearer than I. <laughs> As usual, David is much clearer than I am. Um, um, I, what you were hearing was my attempt to actually try to figure out how to deal with my understanding of Aquinas' moral psychology. I confess freely that I sort of believe it. <laughs> so yes, it's true. The thing I think we need is more than I think we can get from my field. <laughs> but um, that is not a big surprise. 